0: Welcome to Lost in Twin Peaks. Today's episode is an archive reading of the piece I wrote back in 2017. I don't have much else on this episode. Uh, It's part of a video essay, but that includes other episodes as well, so I'll share it uh, in a later podcast. But uh, after I read that piece, or the excerpt from the piece, I'm also going to share the opening minute of the next episode with fair warning. So if you're avoiding spoilers, watching the series along with the podcast for the first time, you can... Uh, stop there if you want, but uh, it'll be the first minute of audio and then my description of what we see. From my previous work on this episode, let's start in 2017, when I was writing my weekly responses immediately after watching the episode for the first time, not knowing what would come next. I wrote, there's something delightful about the Dougie conceit that I can't quite put my finger on or articulate. It has to do with seeing one of the most iconic fictional characters of all time in such an unusual setting, behaving in such an off-key way yet somehow still himself. When he snaps out, you're lying, perhaps because of the position of the other salesman, uh, evoking Bobby across that conference table in the pilot when he tells Bobby he's lying, or as Dougie gasps over the innocuously paper-cupped coffee he's gulping down, these sense memories are ours as well as his. They resonate because, in a way, Cooper was so perfect when we first met him. He debuted, fully formed, as one of the greatest TV characters of all time, the work that got him there all in his off-screen past, already a complete man that very moment. To watch him grope his way back to his own distinctive identity, shimmering on the edges of the form that we first saw him in, is like rewinding to catch a backstory with knowledge of what's to come, a prehistory that also inhabits a sequel space. Firewalk with me, anyone? Something is stirring beneath the Cooper-Dougie surface, evident especially in two incidents. Early that morning, a tear rolls down his cheek, as he observes a sullen, sunny Jim in the back seat, and as dusk settles over his office park, he gazes at an unmoving, unspeaking statue, whose state evokes his own. A wonder and sadness at the mystery of existence seeps into the moment, expressed acutely by Johnny Jewell's windswept on the soundtrack. This is an image of loneliness, contemplation, and yearning that could stand on its own as a work of profound visual art. At the same time, the scene is embedded within an intricate narrative, Until now, Lynch and Frost only collaborated nose-to-nose on the pilot of the original series. We're finally learning how their co-authorship truly expresses itself. There is a detail I noticed on my second viewing of this sequence, trying to capture a still in the slim space between the guard exiting the frame and the credits beginning to roll. The flavor of this moment reminds me of what Grail Marcus wrote about, a similar split-second composition, in Firewalk With Me, which I've quoted at the bottom of my Chet Desmond-Sam Stanley piece under additional observations. It's worth reading the quote in full. The detail. Cooper, who lost his own shoes in his passage back into reality, or whatever this space is, is tenderly touching the shoes of the statue. John Bernardi, a Twin Peaks superfan who is rigorously writing up every single podcast in a weekly post— has speculated that Cooper can't truly return to himself until a certain one-armed shoe salesman returns his footwear to him. So that uh, quote that I mentioned, I've I've actually referenced it a bunch of times. I referenced it in several different podcasts. And uh, I'll I'll link the Chet Sam piece below so you can read it there, I guess. And that's it for Season 3, Part 5. Now let's look at Season 3, Part 6 what comes next? This is the opening minute of that, so you can stop here if you don't want to hear more, but uh, here is the audio from that scene. I told you to be on your way half an hour ago, sir. There's no loitering here. What's your name, sir? What's your name, sir? Dougie Jones. And where do you live, Mr. Jones? home. And where's home? About three seconds over black pass with that melancholy music. When we fade up, slowly, the image is still dark. The dull gleam of a bronze-looking statue, the material evoking a dress shirt with pockets and folds, tucked into belted jeans, one arm draped by the figure's right side. Hidden in shadow, but discernible if you squint, is an arm holding a pistol aloft against the dim shape of a tall office building in the background, barely lighter than that dark, bluish-black night sky behind it. The light catches the shape of the figure's neck and cheek, though otherwise his hatted head is cloaked in the inky nocturnal shade. We may, just, be able to perceive a red balloon waving below the outstretched arm, probably due to our memory of the earlier shots in Part 5, as much as what we can see in these low-light moments. Cutting to a medium-wide shot of Cooper, standing at the statue's base, suddenly, that memory and that present shot are reversed. When last we saw this composition, it was twilight, and both the green-jacketed Cooper and the base of the statue which fascinated him were smudgy, unilluminated as evening shifted into sundown. Now, however, it's so late that the office's plaza lights have turned on, and everything appears much more defined. The lower half of the statue, that right hand clearly clenched at its side, catches light from several directions. The many potted plants, contained in neatly wooded crates at evenly spaced intervals throughout the plaza, all have embedded lights that keep the tiled ground visible. The building behind Cooper and the statue glows with a greenish-blue night lighting as two figures cross in front of its glass facade. Cooper is no longer paying attention to the statue, as he was at the end of Part 5. His files clench tightly under his chin, against his chest, and behind his right arm. His right hand is tugging hard on his left sleeve as he stares intently at that hand, struggling to achieve the impossible task, it seems, of rescuing his entire hand from the cuff by pulling it out of the sleeve rather than back through it. A security guard, middle-aged, dressed in khaki and a brown jacket, bald and dark-haired where he still has hair, approaches Cooper with a resigned, patient air crossing his hands in front of his stomach and contemplating the curious figure, clasping his belt as he leans forward and attempts to clarify his message to the loiterer. Cooper pays him no mind. Forty seconds in, our third cut, a medium over-the-shoulder shot of the guard, with Cooper and his files in the center of the frame. Behind this reverse shot, many low, stubby lamps illuminate a different part of the plaza, and a gently spaced stairway slopes towards those lights, with a gold railing to assist those who are intimidated even by these careful steps. A car turns the corner behind Cooper, its headlights revealing very little, as he gives up on his sleeve and answers the guard's question, even turning a bit in his direction. We return to the medium wide shot as Cooper answers the second question, and then he returns his gaze to the statue's legs, and the guard rolls his eyes slightly while responding with a third question. There, our minute ends. This scene, both the uh, scene that ends part five and begins part six, since they kind of extend into each other, is always a scene sort of filled with regret for me, uh, which is interesting because I think uh, the moment in the series, in this episode, or these episodes, also kind of have that uh, air about them. But this is a scene that I could have seen filmed because uh, back in 2015, I was on the Doug Performs, and or I guess it would have been early 2016. Actually, I was still living in LA a month or two before I would move, and uh, someone contacted me in the direct messages and uh, private messages and said, uh, "There's they're shooting a scene in Glendale." I lived in Pasadena at the time, you know. I know you're in that area. You should come out. And I, I had some commitment to myself. I had as rigorous schedules back then as I do now, except uh, maybe less effective. And I thought I was going to write some sort of creative writing that day. And I said, no, no, I have to do this. There'll be other opportunities. And then I never saw them shoot Twin Peaks. So that that was kind of it. And you always wonder what would have happened if I'd gone out there? Would I have connected with some other people who in the area who uh, were going to other shoots? And I don't know. You know, you, th- you think of these things. And I feel like that characterizes a lot of the Dougie plot, actually, Um I think it connects to some of the things Lynch says in the documentary, The Art Life, about his life. So we'll end on that note and look forward to discussing part six starting tomorrow. That will be the welcome episode where I discuss the feel of the episode, Laura Palmer's presence in it, and uh, the structure as well, kicking off that week of part six. And of course the illustrated companion for part five, which you've been listening to all week, will also be up tomorrow. So You can check all that out. Uh, Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also support this podcast and all of my work on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Thanks for listening, and see you tomorrow.